This morning we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and Bud would be happy to loan you one for the service. Before we pick up the story of Moses in the third chapter of Exodus, we'll refresh ourselves of the history of how we got here. So at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph had a tremendous standing before the Pharaoh of Egypt because of the wisdom and the direction that God had given them to shepherd them through a time of famine. God really set his hand on Joseph's ministry and gave him favor and wisdom and knowledge beyond that uh, of any of the other men in the kingdom so that an Israelite, a Hebrew, was elevated to the second in command. As the time went on, the number of Israelites in the land of Egypt multiplied. We see that in Exodus verses, or chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. It said, But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So there was now a pharaoh, a ruler in place, who did not have the affinity, the care, the remembrance of what God and the God of Israel had done for Egypt through Joseph. And at the same time, the number of Israelites was increasing quite dramatically. Like any earthly-minded ruler, he began to worry that the Israelites would soon be an already present occupying force ready to flip the switch and overthrow their kingdom. So he sent forward in uh, a rule, a decree, that the midwives, those helping the ladies give birth, were to kill all the male Hebrew children that were born. The midwives stood in disobedience to that. And not in direct disobedience, but they were kind of sly about it, which I don't recommend. But they feared the Lord, and they wouldn't carry out this request. And the Pharaoh said, why are there still Hebrew little boys being born? And they said, well, Pharaoh, uh, the Israelite women are not like the Egyptian women. They're very lively, and they give birth before we can get there. <laughs> so then the Pharaoh says, okay, okay. Uh, then just when the babies are born, if they're male, I would like you to throw them in the river. So now enter Moses. Moses was born to his mother. She hid him for three months before putting him in the story that we're all familiar with from Children's Church, putting him in that basket in the river and sending him out down where who would find that basket except for the daughter of Pharaoh. The daughter of Pharaoh opens the basket, see Moses inside, sees Moses inside, and decides to care for him as her own. Interesting to note that she sent for uh, an Israelite woman, a Hebrew woman, to nurse the baby. And who showed up to nurse the baby except for the baby's mother? And it was just wonderful to see God work in that way. But Moses' life can be divided into four it can't be divided into four. It, but it can be divided into three 40-year periods. The first of which began here in Egypt where he was a prince in the court of Pharaoh. He received a phenomenal, tremendous 
upbringing with the best that Egypt had to offer. He had a position of power within this kingdom who was at the height of its power and the most powerful kingdom in the world at that time. Then something happens. He looks out and he sees his Israelite brothers being oppressed. He sees the severe affliction and persecution that they are under because of the heavy hand of Pharaoh. He was angry. He was worried about them um, taking over. So, of course, he exerted his dominance that much more. Make more bricks with less straw. And, and Moses identified with his brothers. He understood his, his Hebrew roots where although he was raised in the palace of Pharaoh, he very much still had a heart for his brothers and sisters of the nation Israel. And so there was one day when he saw one of the leaders, one of the overseers of the slaves, abusing his brothers. And he went out and he confronted him and he looked around and he didn't think anyone was there and he was so disgusted at the way that this Israelite was treating his kinsman that he killed him and then the next day he sees two israelites fighting and he has a heart for them he has a place of power he's already tried to defend them from the egyptians but he says you know well well geez guys if i'm going to defend you from the egyptians can you at least stop fighting amongst yourselves and so he goes he says brothers brothers why are you fighting and they look at him and they say well, who made you judge and ruler over us what are you going to do kill us like you killed the egyptian and he said I didn't know anybody knew. And he was terrified. He said, surely I've been found out. And Pharaoh did find out. And because of this, Pharaoh wanted him killed. So he fled to Midian, far away in the desert. Now, when he gets to Midian, we begin the second 40-year period of his life. 40 years in Egypt. Now he begins 40 years in Midian. He meets... Jethro, who is the priest of Midian, he has seven daughters. He helps his seven daughters get off early from work one day. You can read that in chapter two. It's true. <laughs> and gets a wife for it. So now 40 years later, 40 years after being married and working as a shepherd here in the backside of the desert, we pick up where we're going to start today in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, some things that might not be immediately clear to us. The first 39.99 years of Moses' life were a pretty wild success. Like I said, he was at the top of the top. A baby that was supposed to be killed, that was supposed to be thrown in the river and drowned, found himself as a prince in the most powerful nation in the world. He threw that away. That was taken from him. That evaporated. Now, 40 years later, he's a shepherd. He's a manual laborer one of the lowest valued jobs that could be held at the time. Not only that, but he's been doing this for 40 years and he doesn't even have his own sheep to take care of. 
He is shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. Could you imagine 40 years and you're still just sort of slaving away at your father-in-law's business? Disappointing. He's gone from the top to the absolute bottom. And here is where God meets him. And we see that in verse 2. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from amidst a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And it has to be perplexing to Moses because his life, when, when he burned with fire, right? When he got fired up, he wanted to do a thing for the Lord. He wanted to free the Israelites from Egyptian captivity, but he did it without the Lord's power. He did it in his own strength. He killed an Egyptian and everything that his life had been built up to was immediately consumed and burned into a pile of ash. And yet here in contrast, 40 years later, he sees this bush that is burning, but it's not consumed. And why is this bush burning, but not consumed? It's not consumed because of the presence of the Lord. And we have to remember that whenever we're engaging in any ministry, burnout is so prevalent. You see, we're going to hear that God calls us each to do a tremendously, hugely important thing. And that's unique to each and every one of us. But so many of us have set down that path or we've been on that path for years and years and years and we feel burnt up. We feel burnt out. We feel consumed. That means we need more of the Lord's presence in our ministry. Because when the Lord is present, there's a great flame burning, but the bush is not consumed. But that's aside the major point that we're going to look at this evening. We, that's right, we're going to go all the way through the evening. When this is just the intro, we'll break for lunch, and then we're actually going to get to a point this evening. It's going to be great. My mom's... Uh, All right, I had a place, and it rapidly left me. Verse 4, so when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from amidst the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So at the beginning of this exchange, God is now going to call Moses to ministry. But God didn't speak until he had Moses' attention. The bush could have been on fire. Moses could have noticed it, and he could have been like, hmm, weird bush, and kept on going. God has things that he desires to say to us. And I'm going to use the phrase calling Moses into ministry quite often. I'm going to use the phrase minister. That's not talking about me. Because the moment of our salvation and our call to ministry are one and the same. You see, when we are called to be a part of the kingdom of God, when we are made God's sons and God's daughters, it means we are also made his ministers. Because the thing is, a great, great price was paid for our salvation. The blood of Christ. It was an exceedingly precious price that was paid. And why would you pay such a great price for something that you did not intend to use? 
So we're going to read how Moses was called to deliver the Israelites from the oppression of the Egyptians. But understand that God is calling each and every one of us as believers to a ministry as well. And not just one. Maybe you're 60 and you say, oh, I remember that. Oh, 30 years ago it was great. I heard the call of the Lord and I answered it and it was great and I checked that box and now we can just coast to the finish line. That's not the way it is. God always has another call, another ministry for us. But we won't hear what he has to say until he has our attention. He has Moses' attention and Moses begins running towards the bush. Then the bush, he, the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus, We know that as we study other parts of Scripture, but this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. A theophany would be the actual term. But here we have Jesus before he was put into bodily form in Mary's womb, fully God speaking here from the bush. And he says, Do not draw near to this place in verse 5. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So we know God's not going to speak until he knows he has our attention. And a lot of times, we think God has our attention, but like, like Moses did, we can confuse being casual and being reverent. Here, I think one of the wonderful things about Calvary Chapel, this church, and, and, and many like it, is we know God doesn't care what we wear to church on our legs or on our arms. He does care about the, what we wear on our heart, the attitude our heart wears, an attitude of reverence. You see, so it doesn't matter that I'm wearing jeans or a ball cap. But if I'm here coming before the Lord with a reverent heart, it means he has my attention and my attention isn't divided between that and, you know, just like a mindless cell phone game that I'm flipping through or the grocery list that I'm making in my head or the argument that I'm rehashing in my head. And that's, that's easier and easier for us to do because so many things in today's world war for our attention that we have to be extra diligent, that no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, no matter what we're wearing, it doesn't have to be all dressed up in these and thous and formality, but we need to be sure we are giving the Lord a certain place of reverence because it's so special. And if we really want to have that communion with him and really hear clearly what he has to say, it's very important that we have that conversation one-on-one. Imagine if you've ever talked to your friend or your spouse and they're having a conversation with you, but they're also looking at their cell phone. You, you, know, you, you, you know that you, you don't have all their attention, no matter how much they say, no, 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 you, I'm listening, I'm listening, I'm listening. We can do that with God and not even intentionally and not intend to be disrespectful. It's just a, a lack of reverence and that doesn't mean that you can't, you know, Seek the Lord while you're scrolling through your cell phone. But I'm saying, don't let that be the end of it. Be sure that we still have a place in our lives and in our relationship with the Lord to really honor and position who He is, that place of reverence. That we can understand that 
I am going to focus 100% of my energy on talking to the creator of the universe. And it is astounding that that's even a possibility. How could I possibly be distracted by anyone else? Anything else? Let me work hard to eliminate everything that would pull me away from the moment in this reality that I am talking with the God who made me and the God who has plans for my life. Then in verse 7 through 9, we read, God say, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up to the land that is good and large, to the land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jezebites. Now, therefore, behold the cry now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Sometimes, when I'm trying to share something important with someone, I won't feel finished until they can properly say back to me what I have said to them. When I say, do you understand? If you can say it back to me in your own words, then I know you understand. And here is God saying, I understand the problem. Everything that you've brought to me in prayer, all the things that you've been saying, Lord, this is broken. Lord, this is this, is this issue. God, are you paying attention? And God is saying, yes, I have been listening. I know. I know even more than you think I know. I know more than you know. God says, I know the problem. And then in verse 10, something very peculiar happens. He says, come now, therefore, and I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God says, I understand the problem. I have an intimate knowledge and, and all the power to fix it. But here's the thing. I will send you. And this is the way that God works. He sees the problem and he chooses to send his children to work on his behalf. To work with his power. A God who could solve everything all by himself, without any of our help. Like Thanos, he could just snap his fingers and everything is fixed. God says, I know the problem. I see the issue. And I'm going to send you. And this isn't just true of Moses. This goes back to being true of us as believers because the moment of our salvation and our call to ministry are one and the same. God is saying, not only do I see the problem with you? Do I see the problem in your heart? Do I see the problem of, of the sin that you were born into, the sin that you committed? But I see the problems around you. I see the problems that sin has made in the world, and I'm, I'm going to address it. I have been listening, but I'm going to use you. Second Corinthians 
It says that, that we are workers together with God. And that's, that's astounding. That God sees the problem and says, I will do my ministry through you. Because you see, Moses spent 40 years in Egypt really making something of himself. Then he spent 40 years in the desert really becoming nothing. And he spends the next 40 years leading the nation of Israel showing that God can do something with nothing. Because God is so great and so powerful and so mighty that he could use even weak, imperfect, flawed vessels like me and you to do his work. Like Moses, the person who at the height of his power, when he was part of the ruling house in Egypt, couldn't get the Israelites to listen to him. He said, guys, why are you fighting? They said, you're not my boss. And also, we know you killed that guy. So he ran. Had to spend 40 years losing everything of who he thought he was. All this self-confidence to the point that he now gets to verse 11. Verse 11 in chapter 3, he, he says, But Moses said to God, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And Moses goes on to respond to God's call for his ministry. Right? God says, Moses, I have, a, I have a thing for you to do, and this is it. And instead of responding with obedience, Moses responds as we often do, and that's with, okay, God, I have a couple of questions. And this first question is understandable. Because whenever God asks us to do a thing, it sounds preposterous. Because God does not call us to do things that we can do without him. Otherwise, what is the point? But when God truly places a call in your life, you should look and know that unless God's hands are all over this, it is doomed for failure. It will be terrible for everyone involved. And this is a call that God places on the life of every believer. You will hear this call because God has saved you. Because God has a plan and a purpose for your life, and it is in His nature and it's His character. We see this at the beginning of His dealings with the nation of Israel. We see it all the way through that He will call you to do impossible things, but He will equip you to do them. You see, God does not call those that are the equipped. He does not call those that are capable of doing the task in and of themselves. If that were the case, he would have gone to Moses when he was 40 years old and he said, okay, Moses, now's the time for you to liberate my people. And Moses would have said, what took you so long, Lord? I've been ready for five years. No. God equips the people that he's chosen, and God exalts the humble. That's why Moses had to spend 40 years going from thinking so highly of himself to realizing that if he were to do this thing that God called him to, that no one could take any credit except for God. Because it's his work, and it would be done in his power, not to the glory of Moses. Well, God answers his question of, of who am I? God, how, how could you possibly send me? 
So he, God said in verse 12, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You see, God doesn't answer the question of who Moses is. He says, you're asking the wrong question, Moses. It's not who am I. It's, it's who are you? Who are you, God? That's the, it doesn't matter who Moses is if God is who he says he is. When God calls us to do a thing, the question is not, oh, Lord, how can, how can I possibly do that? Because the implicit answer is, you can't. You can't unless I'm with you. But that's the, that's the nature of our relationship. As my child, I'm calling you to ministry. I'm not hiring you as a task worker. If I wanted to hire an expert, I could have done that. But I don't. I want to be a co-worker with you. I want to partner with you in ministry. I want to put my spirit inside you and I want to use that power to do an incredible thing that you could not do in your own strength. It's not about who you are. It's about who God is. Then Moses said to God in chapter 13, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You see, many times when people had uh, a very significant encounter with the Lord God, they would then return with a new name that God had revealed about himself. Because to know a person's name is to know a little bit more about them. When we think about the names we have with our family members and with our friends, the, the more familiar the relationship, the more endearing the relationship, the, the more intimate the names get. And, and the name that God gives to Moses here, it's interesting because throughout the first three chapters of the book of Exodus, the word is Elohim. Elohim, 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 Elohim. But in the book of Genesis, we see that God had already revealed the name Yahweh. But the, the, the Israelites had forgotten that God had already given them their name. That God had already given them his name. And so when God comes to Moses and Moses says, okay, who should I say sent me? He doesn't give them anything new. He says, I haven't spoken to my children Israel in 400 years, but they haven't exactly remembered me. Why don't you remind them of the name that I already told them? I am that I am. I am what? I am self-existent. I am eternal. There is nothing that was before, and I will continue on forever. Unchanging. I am. Verse 15 through 18, the Lord really begins to detail...
the affliction that the nation has experienced. He says, moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and this is my memorial to all the generations. And he tells them what this ministry is supposed to look like. That after he has their attention, that he gathers them all together and he's to tell them that he is there on behalf of the Lord to deliver them to this better, greater land. But there in verse 19, as God is explaining to Moses how this is going to play out, he says, God speaking to Moses in verse 19 of chapter 3, But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. And this is an important reminder as Moses considers the ministry that's before him. Because oftentimes when God puts a call on our life, we infer that if we are in the center of God's will, then that means life is easy. And as God calls Moses to do this thing, as God calls Moses to go to Egypt, to go to Pharaoh and to deliver the people that are enslaved there, he says, but I don't want you to be surprised when this is difficult. Because just because you encounter opposition, just because things are not all roses and buttercups, does not mean you are not being obedient, it does not mean you are not doing what I asked you to, and it does not mean that you're not doing the right thing. Because part of our sin nature is to conflate easy and right. So few things that are good in life are easy. And the Lord meets us not with easy, but with possible. God meets us with things that are possible only because of His power. He makes what was impossible possible. And we see that as he begins to give Moses signs to increase his testimony to the Israelites and to Pharaoh as a representative of the Lord. Because let's be real, this is a, this is a really big task. He's going to a world leader and he's going to say, hey, I think you should give up your free workforce. Why? Because my God said so. But God doesn't call the equipped. He doesn't enlist people that have all the skills necessary. But God equips the called. God gives you a call and He will meet you in that. And he will set His hand of power on what you already have. We see this as the discussion continues in chapter 4. And from here on out, Moses has been sort of going back and forth with these questions of the Lord. God says, Moses, I want you to do this thing. And Moses says, okay, I have a question. He says, okay, well, hold on, I have, a, I have another question. Who, sh who should I say sent me? And then he has another question. And they get worse and worse as they go along. He says, but Moses answered and said in chapter 4, verse 1, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. And so often when God calls us to do a thing for him, when God calls us to ministry, we get trapped asking God what-if questions. Because isn't that another word for suppose? You're like, oh, Lord, well, suppose 
this doesn't work out. Or, or, or Lord, I, I, I know you, you've called me to start attending Wednesday night Bible studies. Oh, but Lord, suppose I can't get the time off of work Wednesday night. Or, you know, suppose the electricity bill goes off. And God's like, we're, we're not having this conversation. If I, we could play what if until I come back on a white horse. But the reality is sometimes that's just an expression of our disobedience. And we'll see as the conversation continues with Moses, he's, these stop looking like questions, stop looking like legitimate inquiries. God, how could you possibly send me? That's a good question. God, when I, when I get there, who should I say sent me? How can I be a representative? That's a good question. Well, God, what if this and what if that? Okay, starting to sound like excuses. Any of you have children <laughs> know that it, what starts off legitimate can turn into excuses and, and their will becomes revi- revealed very soon. And God says in verse 2, it's so beautiful how he answers. The Lord said to him, what is that that is in your hand? Moses said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand. You see, this is one beautiful picture of what it means for God to equip the called. You see, oftentimes we don't value the skills or experiences that God has already sovereignly put in our lives. Just like Moses walked around with a walking stick with a staff, and he thought, how could this possibly be of any useful service to the Lord? But you see, God equips the called. And he equips the called by setting his hand of power upon what they already have, what he has already placed in their life. Because sometimes don't we think like, Oh, you know, God has called me to feed uh, a thousand homeless people. And we expect to wake up one day with an industrial kitchen in our driveway, gift wrap, and Cisco comes and drops off food every week. And you're like, I knew the Lord was behind this ministry because this is what his provision looks like. That's not what he did with Moses. So often, God's equipping us, God's empowering us, God's working in our lives to do the thing that he has called us to do looks like him setting his power on something that we already have. I don't know what that staff in your life is. Maybe it's a job, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a skill, maybe it's a block of time, maybe it's other resources that might not seem like much now. But that's how you know that you will be giving God all the glory when he sets his hand to power on it and it explodes in, in, in fruit, in richness, in benefit to the kingdom. God continues this with the second sign in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 4. Furthermore, the, the Lord said to him, Now, Put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, now put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again. And he drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. So God in his graciousness answers Moses' slightly shaky what if questions with, Not one sign, 
Not two signs, but a third sign. Verse 9 says, And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Now, if we're talking about God equipping us for ministry and God using what we already have, and I said we probably don't value the things that we have as God values them. Let's take another look at what these signs are doing. The first two signs were signs of transformation. And in Egyptology, snakes often represent power. And so Moses, as he was going to Pharaoh, had this snake. Do you know where the, Tamara, where's the most dangerous place to grab a snake? By the tail. Yes. The most dangerous place to grab a snake is by the tail. Because you're as far away from the head as possible, and they can bite you very easily. But... God calls Moses to grab this snake by the tail to show what? That one, this thing that represents power, the power of your enemies, the power of Egypt, it, you have power over your enemies now. And, and, and we think like, oh God, what are you going to give me to do this ministry that you've called me to? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit? The fact that the, the power of sin and death have been broken in your lives? The fact that you're indwelt by the Lord God? We undervalue things, but when He sets that ablaze, when He uses that to His glory, He says, your enemies no longer have power. That's the first thing. The second thing, He says, that that, that hand, that sickness, that disease, everything that is polluted about you will be made pure. Because before we knew the Lord, we were slaves to sin. Everything about us was polluted. It didn't matter how much we loved something, how good we wanted to do, it would only result in brokenness and emptiness. Because the wages of sin is death. And it didn't matter how much we enjoyed this life and what it had to offer the flesh. We were unsatisfied, and we were unpure. And surely we would feel just like Moses, God, how could I even come before you having killed this Egyptian? Man, I, I wrecked it. I trashed it. God, how, how could you use me for ministry? Lord, do you know what I've done? And God says, I've, I've made all the pollution in you pure. I've cleansed that. That's the second sign. Your enemies have no power, and you've been made pure. You've been made pure by the blood of your son. And then the third sign, we see that the Nile in Egypt represented life. Were it not for the Lyle, Nile, the whole civilization was tanked. And so often we, we can be tempted to go to the, wor the world for life and, and to drink what the world sees as life, whatever that is. Sometimes it's success, sometimes it's fame, sometimes it's popularity, accomplishment, security, safety, achievement, advancement. You can, you can fill in your own blank. We, we, we all have one tailor-made for our heart, heart. But we go to the world for life. 
But the reality is, is when God sets his hand on that and, and reveals it for what it is, when that's, when that's poured out, it's, it's what? It's nothing but blood, but death. So the Lord, as he's calling Moses into ministry, just as he calls each and every one of us into ministry, he says, when I'm doing a thing, I do not call the best qualified. I do not call the people that are in all the powerful positions and, and can easily do what I've asked them to do, right? They don't even need to consult me. If he wanted to do that, he would have talked to Moses 40 years earlier. But he doesn't. He said, I equip the called. I will find people that have humbled themselves, that have been humbled, and that are willing, like Moses was, to do uncomfortable things because of faith. Because the conversation goes a lot further and it ends up with the Israelites walking out of Egypt. But what, what would have happened if God said, okay, cast the snake down or, or cast the rod down. It turns into a snake. And he says, okay, now, now pick it back up by the tail. Moses, who it says fled from the snake, he is not a fan of snakes, as no one should be. He flees from the snake and, and God says, okay, pick up the snake by his tail. What does this look like then? Moses says, no. That's scary. That's uncomfortable. I don't want to. The conversation looks a lot different. The conversation stops there. And the reality is if you, you read farther down in chapter 4, Moses even says, that's his last question, as they get worse and worse and worse, he says, God, can you send just anybody else? But he ends up going. And he ends up going because he has faith. As, as weak and as imperfect and as small as it might be, he had the faith to reach down and, and pick up that snake. He had faith to do the uncomfortable thing on the way to answering the great and mighty call that God had for his life. And that's each of us today. You know, you might find yourself in one of those different 40-year periods that characterize Moses' life. Maybe you think you possess all the, the skills and the knowledge and the know-how and the direction of a 40-year-old Moses. Maybe you think that the, the world is yours for the taking and you're going to be able to handle this. You're not very useful to the Lord. Because the Lord doesn't call the equipped. He doesn't draft the best player. But he wants to take someone and he wants to raise them up and he wants to train them and he wants to strengthen them so that he receives the glory and that you're not confused, that you're not led into believing that you did a thing but that he did a thing. And, and how awesome and how great and how mighty must his love be that, that he would use us to do a thing. How? Lord, how could you possibly use me, use us to do your great work? What love, what power, 
that he would so care for his children that he would call us to that responsibility and that he would meet us in that call to do what he's asked us to do. Maybe you're in the middle of years 80 through 120 of Moses' life and you are hard at it for the Lord. It can get tiring. It can get weary. You can feel just as Moses did. He did it plenty imperfectly. Moses walked in obedience. Moses had faith. Moses was by far not a perfect example. Don't expect that you will be either. But God still used Moses. Moses always got back up. He kept doing it. God extended his grace. And and the reality is we are so much more privileged as believers and dwelt with the Holy Spirit than Moses could ever fathom. Some of us sit here and it's like, man, I wish I had a stick that could do tricks. I wish shrubbery talked to me. That would make my relationship with God so much better. The reality is you're so much more fortunate. You're so much more blessed that that God doesn't have to speak through shrubbery because uh, when when we come, when we come to the cross and and we accept that it's our, our sin that separates us from having fellowship with God and that the only way to cleanse that sin, the only way to wash it away is with the, just the perfect blood of his son poured out as a sacrifice for us. That if that gets our sin out of the way, then we can have fellowship with him. And if we can have fellowship with him, then he can send his spirit to live inside of us. The Holy Spirit, the helper that Jesus promised as he was walking through the streets of Galilee. And that helper, helping us do what? helping us do the things that God has called us to do. It's not always about what God can do for us. Because believe me, He can do more than we could ever do for ourselves. God can take your life and and make it unrecognizable from the wretch that He took off the streets of sin, wherever you may have been the penthouse of sin. But it's not just about what God can do for us, but also what God can do with us. Moses was not perfect. Moses made mistakes. Moses had questions. I expect the same of myself, and I expect much the same of you. But we know that God used Moses very mightily, and God has just as mighty plans for you. They might not involve a nation. They might involve a grandchild. They might involve a parent. They might involve a co-worker. They might involve a small business. I don't know. I'm not God. But what I do know is that if you give God your attention, He will speak to you because He paid a great price. He has great work for you to do. And when He speaks to you, when He calls you to do a thing, if you're obedient in that, He will give you what you need to do it. Because he is that good, he is that strong, and he is that powerful. Father God, we could testify of your greatness for ages, for centuries. God, 
We can't even recount in our own lives all the great things you've done. But Lord, we know that Moses is a man just like we are. We know that there are oftentimes we ask clarification questions as a way to sidestep the issue. Lord, we know that there are times when we see you trying to speak to us and we won't give you our attention because we know we don't want to hear what you have to say. Father, forgive us of our disobedience. Let us not hide behind ignorance. Lord, let us not hide behind fear. And Father, for any here that hear this and say, you know, I don't, I don't know that God really has plans for my life. I don't believe that. Father, I pray that you would just first draw them towards the ministry of reconciliation, that, that they don't see that because they're still separated from you by sin. Father, I pray that you would just lead them to the cross. that they could be a part of your family and that they could have just an honest conversation and, and be able to hear and understand your heart for them as communicated through your word, that we are your children. Father God, we cannot thank you enough for that standing and we pray that you would meet us and that you would continue to equip us for the things that you've called us to as we serve you here on earth until you return, Lord. And we pray this in your son's name, the angel of the Lord speaking from the burning bush, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.